On September 11th, 2001, 19 militants associated with the Islamic extremist group Al-Qaeda hijacked four airplanes and carried out suicide attacks against targets in the United States. Two of the planes were flown into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. A third plane hit the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And the fourth plane crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. A total of 2,996 people were killed in the 9-11 attacks, including the 19 terrorist hijackers that were aboard the four airplanes. Citizens of 78 countries died in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. At the World Trade Center, 2,763 died after the two planes slammed into the Twin Towers. That figure includes 343 firefighters and paramedics, 23 New York City police officers, and 37 Port Authority police officers who were struggling to complete an evacuation of the buildings and save the office workers trapped on higher floors. At the Pentagon, 189 people were killed, including 64 on American Airlines Flight 77, the airliner that struck the building, and on Flight 93, 44 people died when the plane crash-landed in Pennsylvania. 9-11, September 11th, 2001. Do you remember that day? Do you remember what went through your mind when you saw those images on the television screen of planes crashing into buildings on our land? Do you remember what you were doing? Do you remember how that one day, almost 21 years ago, has affected your life and how you view the world ever since? It was a day that has been seared into the minds of millions and millions of people all around this country and has had an effect on the rest of our lives. If you were born basically after 1994, so if you're probably 28 years of age or younger here this morning, it's very likely you probably only know about this day through reading history textbooks in school or watching documentaries on the History Channel or Netflix But for the rest of us here this morning, I'm sure we all have our own personal testimonies of where we were at, what we were doing, and how we received the bad news on that grim day. You see, anytime we encounter bad news that touches us personally, it touches us to the core of who we are and what we value and what we love. Friends, it's going to leave a lasting mark. It's going to affect us. It's going to leave a lasting memory, a lasting scar that time only heals to a certain degree. It could be the memory of a national tragedy like 9-11. It could be on the local level in your own community where you live, like your school or your workplace It could even be bad news that reaches your local church or your family. Friends, sometimes bad news comes into our lives, grabs us by the shirt, and looks us dead in the face on a very personal 
and painful level. Friends, when you have to bear the brunt of bad news, how do you respond? Do you tend to run to God for help and hope and help others do the same? Or do you tend to run from God and isolate yourself from others in shame? in fear, maybe even in denial. Bad news can range from inconvenience, minor disappointments, and schedule cancellations, all the way to dashed dreams, divided churches, destroyed friendships and marriages, and even the tragic death of people we love. But when we receive the bad news, friends, as Christians, we are not without hope. If we see bad news through the lens of God's sovereignty and his steadfast Lord towards us in Christ, it can also be the beginning of something redemptive, something quite liberating, something worth boasting about the goodness of God about when he turns the ashes in our lives into something beautiful shining from our lives. Something beautiful like the birth of faith in the midst of overwhelming discouragement and unbelief. The birth of joy in the midst of sorrow and shame. The birth of hope in the midst of anxiety and depression. The birth of humility and Christ-like lowliness. And the death of human pride in hidden sin. Without being the author of sin or the tempter of others to sin, God in his mysterious wisdom and sovereignty can take the evil acts and evil motives of people, along with disaster and destruction on the international, on the national, and on the local level. And he can use all of it to break us down. To break us down of our self-reliance, self-centeredness, and self-sufficiency. Really, to break us down from trusting in ourselves as we create savior substitutes, usually ourself. When we put anything that is created over and above the creator, friends, that's called an idol. That's a false god. That's a false savior. And friends, the Lord does this. He uses all sorts of things in our lives. Bad news that can range from a wide spectrum to begin a work in us to trust him at a depth we've never trusted him before. This morning, we turn to God's word to see how bad news in the lives of God's people can lead to what God cares most about. It can lead to broken and contrite hearts before God. Broken and contrite hearts that our God will not despise. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 226. If you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, you can take that Bible in front of you or beside you as a gift 
from our church to you. Don't take your neighbor's Bible. They might not like that. But take the Bible that's in the chair. That's for free. Please follow with me. In Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. As I mentioned last week, today begins a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, Lord willing, when I'm preaching in the pulpit, we'll be studying this book over the next four months together as a church family. So feel free to be reading ahead, chapter by chapter, in your family devotion time or your personal devotional time, so you can get a good grasp and feel of the whole book. And as we should do before we study any book of the Bible, we should first begin by grasping something of the historical context of this book. So if you have your worship guide with you, it looks like this. On page eight, I'm going to flip there really quick. We included this little chart for you, 
just to kind of help you see where we're at in redemptive history. Uh, This is a chart that kind of lays out for you chronologically of what's gone on in history since the very beginning. So you have Genesis to the far left, and you have Nehemiah to the far right. You'll notice on the very far right, in very small print, if you have glasses or you're under 30, you can see the book of Nehemiah recounts a time frame that stretched over a 12-year period from about 445 B.C. to 433 B.C. Now, there's a whole lot more going on than just simply this chart, so I'm going to catch us up to speed, helping us understand our Bibles, because one of my personal convictions is that I believe New Covenant, New Testament Christians should not ignore their Old Testament. The New Testament is built upon the foundation of the old. All scripture is God-breathed. So if you're intimidated to read Jeremiah, Haggai, Esther, and the rest of the minor prophets, get over it. We're going to walk through this together as brothers and sisters to not be intimidated by God's word, but to love it. So if you've got a pen, you're not going to be able to catch up with me through the whole time in this background, but you can jot down some dates and some Bible verses to go back for your own study. So here we go. In 586 BC, a major event happened in human and redemptive history. So in your chart, you'll notice in very small print that this marks the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And it's also the time when the book of Lamentations is written. You know that favorite verse and hymn we like to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness? Yeah, that's not just a hymn or a good thing to put in a Hallmark card. It's actually found in a book with some context. So Lamentations is written during this time. So what exactly happened in 586 B.C.? What's the big deal? Well, due to years and years of covenant faithlessness, spiritual adultery, basically, of God's people and the ungodliness, the rank hypocrisy of the kings that would lead his own people astray from God, a prophecy from God would finally be fulfilled. Jeremiah, who is most commonly known as the weeping prophet of the Old Testament. Friends, if you read his prophecy, you will find out he had something to weep about. He was sent by God on a special mission to the wayward people of the southern kingdom of Judah. If you read the first 29 chapters of the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, you'll notice how this weeping prophet ushered warning after warning after warning on behalf of God to his people. Warnings, pleadings, anguish, tears, weeping. To see the people of Israel return back to the God of Israel. To see a people that were brought out of Egypt, led through the wilderness, be restored in sweet communion with their faithful God once again. But the timing of the prophecy would eventually reach the end of its rope. The hourglass had been poured out, and the last particle of sand had fallen. The warnings that God spoke through Jeremiah were largely not heeded. 
The people had become deaf to the word of God. And therefore, the judgment of God was heading their way. In other words, time was up. So what was the judgment that was heading their way? Well, the warnings that Jeremiah ushered was that if the people of Israel did not repent, that means turn from their idolatry, uh, that means putting people and things and created things before and above God himself, and if they did not humbly confess and turn from their plethora of grotesque sins that they had committed against God, God promised that tragedies like war, famine, and pestilence would overtake the land. And as you read passages like Leviticus 26, it's a good one to read on your own time, and Deuteronomy 28, which are basically parallels, you'll actually see Nehemiah reference this in our text this morning in verses 8 and 9. He's quoting from Leviticus 26 and alluding to Deuteronomy 28. These passages contain the blessings if you obey him and the cursings if you turn your back on the Lord. This was a covenant that God made uniquely with Israel. And friends, the scriptures are very clear. If you break this covenant, there are consequences for sinning against a holy God. One of the things that you'll notice within these cursings, within these judgments for not heeding God's warnings, would be exile, removal, deportation, expulsion, and uprooting of the very foundations of their lives and to be sent out to a foreign place, to be slaves to a foreign king, and never to return back to your land again. This exile would be banishment, Banishment from their homeland and banishment from the central place of worship of the one true God, namely Jerusalem, sometimes called Mount Zion as it's synonymously placed in the scriptures. The place where God said he would make his name dwell, Deuteronomy 12. This is the place where God's special presence would be with his people. The place where the presence of God and the power of God made Israel a distinct people, a holy people, a special people, a protected people from all the enemies of God. And this banishment would also eventually lead to mockery and disdain that would be heaped upon them by God's enemies. And that means they would be looked at as failures, nobodies. They would be looked at as pathetic people whose faith is in a powerless God, a faith that's really just a waste of time. It's a fairy tale. That's why Psalm 137, another one to look at in your own time, it captures us the dark time of sadness and despair when the captors would mock God's people about losing the land. You see, beloved, by being exiled from the land, they would be losing everything that once meant everything to them. The people would be scattered. Their possessions would be stolen. Peace and security would be removed. And their place of identity and their place of worship would be taken from them. 
Even worse than that, by losing the land and losing the temple, it also meant, friends, they were in danger of losing their God. Have you ever lost something that meant everything to you? It could be a relationship. It could be a home. It could be a church. It could be a business venture. It could be a collegiate scholarship. Friends, we often don't know how blessed we are until something we have taken for granted is taken from us. You know the cliche, you don't know how good you have it until it's gone. Friends, that was a real and painful experience for the people of Israel. It's a real and painful experience that we all experience in this life too. You know the old song, count your blessings, name them one by one? Well, that's a great way to catechize your children because you need to teach your children. Some of those blessings won't always be there. The Lord gives and he what? Takes away. For Israel, this was their real life. They lost everything that meant everything to them. You see, Jerusalem would soon be destroyed by fire and war. ServPro could not restore this type of fire. As the Chaldeans, under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, burned down the temple and burned down all the people's houses. They would break down the walls that surrounded and protected the city. And they would even steal all the valuable vessels that Solomon had put in the temple that was used for the worship. As a result, if you read Jeremiah 52, it's another good one to remember. Jeremiah 52, verses 28 to 30. 4,600 people were carried away over 400 miles to Babylon. That's Jerusalem to modern-day Iraq. They were taken captive, not on a vacation, not on a cruise ship, not on some tour. They were taken as slaves to serve an evil king, never to see their land again. Sin has consequences. But Brother Blake, there's forgiveness. Yes, sin has consequences. You see, from the initial besieging of the city around 605 B.C., this captivity, this exile to Babylon, you know how long it took? You know how long they were there? 70 years. Think about that for a minute. We think, you know, 70 minutes at a restaurant is like a lifetime. 70 minutes in the car to get to something fun to do in Fayetteville. 70 years. Friends, that's basically two to three generations of people. Two to three generations of families that would live in Babylon a place that was not home for them. A place where they lived amongst a very different kind of people, the Babylonians. And you can see that on the chart there, that span of 70 years printed in your bulletin. It's the time period of which Daniel and Ezekiel. So if you have no clue what those books are about or you've been confused, now you know. They were written in that time period of the 70 years in Babylon. 
However, of all the bad news that we've just been replayed in the last 20 minutes, God did not forever forsake his exile people. He would not forget his promise to preserve a faithful remnant and restore them at a future appointed time. You see, friends, even in judgment, even though sin has consequences, God would not leave his redeemed people without a future hope. If you have your Bibles, hold your finger in Nehemiah 1. I want you to flip to Jeremiah. This is going to be fun because this verse, often taken out of context in larger evangelicalism, now you understand the context. You're going to be able to exegete this text and help people understand what Jeremiah 29 is primarily speaking about. So look with me in Jeremiah 29. I want you to look with me starting in verse 10. This is a passage where God's going to send a letter through a messenger And he's going to tell them, these exiles in Babylon, I have not forgotten you. It's been bad, not for one decade, not for two decades, not for three decades, not for four decades, not for five, not for six, but for seven. You're going to stay there and raise families, plant trees, build houses, and live among the Babylonians. But take heart. You have a future you have hope to look forward to. Look with me in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. This is what the promise is through the prophet Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Could you you imagine what that would have sounded like? I'm going to bring you home. All is not lost. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. All right, so you can go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you haven't read Jeremiah in a long time or never, you got some homework this week if you want to kind of be caught up to speed. So what happens? They didn't listen to Jeremiah, but God still gives them hope of the future. After 70 years had been fulfilled, God was faithful to his promise. Friends, God's promises might seem slow, but they're always on time. God's promises might seem slow, but they're always on time. After the Persians had defeated the Babylonian Empire around 539 BC, another important date, God then raised up and stirred up the heart of King Cyrus of Persia, to release the Jews and send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's found in Ezra chapter 1. So if you're like, I want to read about that. you got so much you can read this week. Here is Ezra 1. And so over the course of about a half a century or so, God would then raise up several leaders 
Like Moses, like Joshua, God never lacks men to lead his people. These men in this era would be Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. You can read about them in Ezra 5 and in the minor prophet Haggai. And then you can read the whole book of Ezra and learn about Ezra, the priest scribe. These men were used of God and others they would raise up to to lead two different waves of exiles back to their homeland. So what was the work? What was the mission that God had fulfilled through prophecy, delivered them and sent them back home to accomplish? What had God in his mercy and in his power redeemed them and delivered them to do? Well, it was to restore what had been lost. To restore what had been lost. In other words, they were released and sent back home not for an extended vacation. They were released and sent back home to get to work. But not to work for their salvation, but rather to participate in what God was doing in Jerusalem. What God was doing through giving, him, giving them his loving commands that were good for them. They were going to see life again, experience life again, as God had intended all along. And this rebuilding would be the altar, Temple, the place of worship. The place of worship with the annual feast and God's word being front and center in their life again. Along with this rebuilding, this construction project, that means they were also to focus on the spiritual construction, the spiritual reformation that still needed to take place in their life. And that's really the rest of Ezra. Ezra 2 to Ezra 10. However, Just like we see in our own lives as Christians, anytime God is working, the enemies of God will be working overtime against us. And friends, that's really what happens in the book of Ezra. They get some progress. They get to like the 50-yard line. We got the altar. We got the temple. And then the enemies start pushing them back. And they don't finish the work. They don't complete the task neglect towards the house of God remained. It was incomplete. And that means that the work of God, the work that God had sent his people to accomplish, to show off his glory and to bless his people with joy again, was an incomplete work. Instead of seeing lasting revival, spiritual apathy set in among the people. Mixed religious marriages with ungodly nations, corrupted families. And the threats and the taunts of the enemies of God came crashing down on them. The people of God were being worn down. Their hearts would sink low. Their eyes were kept from seeing what they were sent to do. And what was the result? The walls and gates of Jerusalem had never been totally rebuilt. They were still in ruin, which brings us to the book of Nehemiah. 
The book of Nehemiah brings us to the time period where God would raise up a new leader within a new generation of Jews in God's timing. It was God's timing now to use Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and reform and rebuild the lives of God's people. So, if you're taking notes, I have two main points that I hope will help you kind of put your arms around chapter 1, because much of chapter 1 is setting the course for the rest of the book. Number one, I'll say these a few times, receiving bad news is inevitable, but no bad news is outside of God's sovereign control. Receiving bad news is inevitable, but no bad news is outside of God's control. And point number two, our response to bad news is a test of our faith and will reveal how needy we are of God's mercy and power. Our response to bad news is a test of faith and will reveal how needy we are of God's mercy and power. Let's look at that first one there, really verses one to three. Receiving bad news is inevitable, but no bad news is outside of God's sovereign control. The story picks up where I just left off with us in the book of Ezra, where Nehemiah has received bad news, really bad news, depressing bad news, really, 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 really bad news. He receives bad news about the people of God and how the place where they were to be at work was not doing so swell. You'll notice in the very beginning of the book a few proper names that will be helpful to kind of help you see where we're at. First off, who is Nehemiah? Well, we read in Nehemiah 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So if you've ever wondered, you know, is everybody in the Bible like superstars, God's favorites? You know what's interesting? There's almost nothing said about Nehemiah in the whole Bible except right here. Uh, He's mentioned one time in Ezra 2 as working alongside the exiles to accompany the work, but really it's just here. It's the only time he's really named. And he says he's the son of Hakaliah. But guess what? There's nothing in the Bible much really about his daddy either. So a no-name daddy and a no-name son somehow got in the Bible. Nehemiah had apparently been born in his father's household while they were living in Babylon for those 70 years of captivity. So logic would infer to us that Nehemiah had never lived in Jerusalem at the time when Israel was exiled back in 586 B.C. But friends, Nehemiah would certainly have known about that national tragedy. He didn't have textbooks to read in his school to learn about that tragedy. He didn't have Netflix to watch. But his daddy and his daddy's daddy and his daddy's daddy's daddy would have told him the stories of why his descendants were exiled. Why and how God's commandments have been broken and ignored and put on a back seat. Though we don't know much about Nehemiah's past or family heritage, we do know something about what he did for a living. So well of all the vocations, Nehemiah had a unique and special role. Uh, he's the cupbearer, much like a butler would be today in a very wealthy home. Uh, you can see that there in verse 11, at the end of verse 11. Now I was cupbearer to the king. 
Uh, what is a cupbearer and what king was he a cupbearer for? Well, according to Nehemiah 2 verse 1, so we'll look at next week, it was King Artaxerxes, king of Persia that he worked for in the 20th year of his reign. Uh, you can also see that there in chapter 1 verse 1. A cupbearer would have been a servant in the king's palace who was deemed highly trustworthy and even considered a respectful confidant for the king because of the integrity and the status that he would have held. Uh, his job had required the utmost character because this man had influence. He wasn't a nobody in the king's palace. Uh, really, at the end of the day, what's a cupbearer? Well, basically, he's the taste tester of the appetizers and the foods, the wine and the food that would be served to the king. Because if anyone wanted to try to usurp the king, revolt against the king, one of the ways to do that without getting caught is to poison the cup. Put a little Sinai in that Coke from Casey's. Well, he was wise. He hired a cupbearer. You drink it first, and if it's good, you don't drop dead, I'll drink it second. Well, that's what a cupbearer did. He had to be someone the king could trust. Someone the king could turn his back to and know that what's being fed through the kitchen isn't going to kill me. And what bad news did Nehemiah receive at this unique time in history? There's really two things we learned from this text, and we'll learn way more about this in the weeks to come. We learned that there was the spiritual brokenness of the people and the physical brokenness of the walls of Jerusalem. Let's look at that first one, the spiritual brokenness of the people. Notice verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. In verse 2, we read that Hanani, one of his relatives and a group of Jews, came to Nehemiah all the way from Judah, all the way from Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away to give Nehemiah a status update a status update on how God's people were doing. How did they describe it? The people are in great trouble and shame. Those words meant distress, disaster, calamity, misery. It basically meant a condition detrimental to life. They were in rough shape, they told Nehemiah. Also, they were full of shame. It means a word of reproach, a disgrace, insult, or threat. In other words, they have been dogpiled on, upon dogpiled on, by people who mocked them, threatened them, all because, well, your so-called God couldn't restore what he sent you to do. Friends, this is huge. Here's Nehemiah, in a prestigious, we might consider well-paying, dream job. He knows what's happened years ago. His family's told him about the exile, and he's gotten word through the grapevine that rebuilding has begun, construction has begun, a new church plant's begun, people are coming. But he finds out that the people aren't doing so well. They were a spiritually weak people. They were malnourished 
on the word of God. They were fearful of God's enemies. They were like an aimless flock of sheep who needed to be shepherded. They were a broken flock of sheep with no courage to see beyond their grim circumstances. Friends, they were sheep that felt helpless and sheep that felt hopeless. Friends, today in America, even here in Fort Smith, when you pass by a church that was once vibrant in decades past, but now, from what you can tell, is dying or dead, it should break our hearts. What concerns God's heart should break our hearts. That's one of the biggest problems with us as Christians. We can become so self-centered and so numb to the pain around us, to actually what God cares deeply about, that we only care about our own problems. Friends, that's why we pray for other churches every Sunday. You know why? Because if this church closes its doors and I drop dead and become worm food, the kingdom of God is going to do just fine without us. We want to see other churches do well. We want to see other pastors raised up. We want to see the gospel advance from Barling to New Zealand. And friends, it should break our hearts when we don't see the gospel advancing. It should break our hearts when we see Christians who are malnourished in the word of God. Christians that want a joke and a Coke on Sunday, but don't want God. It should break our hearts. Secondly, notice there was the physical brokenness of the walls of Jerusalem. The end of verse 3 reads, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As I've already mentioned, there were years of neglect. The people were left open to the attacks of the enemy. In other words, the front door was wide open. The gates were destroyed. There was no wall to protect them. There was no border patrol around the city. The enemy could have free reign in these people's lives. Friends, these broken down walls, these gates that have been destroyed and broken down, the rubble, the ashes, friends, this was a sign of utter defeat. But this was really just a visual for what was going on in here inside the people. Friends, receiving bad news is inevitable. It's not a matter of if, but when. And no person, regardless of their age, ethnicity, job, religion, marital status, or gender, is exempt from bearing the brunt of bad news at some point in your life. And ever since man rebelled against God in the garden, bad news has always been the experience from the fall until we die. And yet, God remains in total control. God never takes his hand, so to speak, off the wheel. We don't have to understand that totally. We just need to trust and believe that he does. No matter how bad the news may be, God is still in control. So think about it. You've been patient Bible students for almost now 35 minutes. Think about how God has been in control of their life all along. God was the one who sent Jeremiah to warn the people. 
God was the one who gave Jeremiah that wonderful promise in Jeremiah 29 that he would give them a future and a hope. God was the one who raised up and sent Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to discipline his people and send them to Babylon. And God was the one who would cast Nebuchadnezzar down by raising up the Persian empire to take out the Babylonians. And then at God's time and his mysterious ways, he stirred up a pagan, unbelieving king, the Persian king, to give them everything they would need to go back to Jerusalem. In other words, God can take the most crooked and jacked up sticks to draw the straightest lines. He can use anybody at any time to get his will accomplished. Out of all times and out of all people, God chose a man, really, that had no name, no family name, serving in the citadel in Susa, almost 450 to 500 miles away from Jerusalem. Nehemiah, who had never lived in that land. Nehemiah, who heard stories about the exile, who heard stories about the destruction, who heard stories about the stopping and starting of the work. This man was now a cupbearer. God had raised him up in the Esther-like way for such a time as this. Friends, I don't know what kind of bad news you've received in recent years, what kind of bad news you've received in recent months or recent days. But if you're anything like me, I can question God's sovereignty. I can question God's care when you're receiving that bad news. I'm right there with you. I'm tracking with you. But even in your questions and my doubts, beloved, God never changes. He is there and he cares. You see, God knows what will happen, and God knows what has happened. God knows what will happen, and God knows what has happened. And even when you and I don't understand the whys and the hows, he does. Friends, receiving bad news is just a humble reminder that we are not in control. We are control freaks. And a part of sanctification is God saying, get your hand off the wheel, stubborn young man. Get your hand off the wheel. Young lady, older lady, older gentleman. Friends, we all have this little sovereignty complex somewhere buried under the heart. And you know what God's going to do? A part of his work in us is prying back our fingers from thinking we're in control. We are not in control. Our responsibility is how do we respond to bad news? Which leads to our second point. Our response to bad news is a test of faith and will reveal how needy we are of God's mercy and power. So how did Nehemiah respond? What did he do? He basically did three things. He patiently processed what he heard. He persistently prayed to his God. And he led God's people as an example of how to do the same in their life. 
He patiently processed what he heard. He persistently prayed to his God, and he led God's people as an example, as a leader would do, of how to do that in their life. Notice how Nehemiah processed what he heard and how it led him to a season. I want you to catch that. A season of brokenness and a season of persistent prayer to his God. Look at me at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When you get that nasty email sent to you at work, or you get chewed out over the phone, or you get that heart-wrenching and disappointing text message while you're outside going for a walk, or you get word that someone you care about is abruptly leaving your church, or the doctor tells you news about a lab report you didn't want to hear, or you have a family meeting where your husband or wife, your mom or dad, your son or daughter drops some heavy news on you, or when you turn on the television and witness another national calamity or an awful mass shooting in the country, brothers and sisters, how do you respond? How do you respond? We cannot control all bad news. We cannot control the circumstances of our life. But we are responsible for how we respond to it. When your world seems to have been turned upside down, and it feels like a massive boulder is on your back, Where do you go to find refuge for your weary soul? For Nehemiah, when he heard these words, in other words, he was taking it in, wasn't saying anything, just taking it in. When he opened his inbox, when he looked at his phone, when he opened the mail, when he walked into the office at work and the darkness began to penetrate his mind, about how the people were doing, about how the walls of Jerusalem were. Did you notice what he did first? He sat down. He sat down. Nehemiah didn't immediately try to be a savior. Gentlemen, when your wife brings some difficult things to you that she's bearing up, maybe the first thing we ought to do, even though we think we might know the solution, and can save a lot of time in the process. We might just need to sit down and listen. Nehemiah didn't run to the problem and try to fix the solution himself. Nehemiah didn't try to become a busy bee, you know, wearing himself out to try to suppress and deny the pain he was going through. No, he felt the weight of this dark hour, and it brought him to stillness. Stillness before the Lord. Be still and know that I am God, the Lord of hosts says. Be still and know that I am God. But don't misunderstand, when reading that Nehemiah sat down, his sitting down was not Nehemiah giving up. Nehemiah wasn't a passive man with a plastic backbone. 
He wasn't sitting down as a way to escape reality, quit on life, or give up on responsibilities. No, as we'll read in the next chapters, Nehemiah was courageous. He was a man full of good works. But before he was a man of action, he was a man who learned how to humble himself and be still before the Lord. Friends, how are you doing lately? with being still before the Lord? Are you feeling anxious and fearful? Depressed? Defeated? Shamed? Hopeless? What is the Lord teaching you that may be doing less could actually do you more spiritually in the end. Maybe being still before the Lord and being quiet is the first place God may take you to restore to you the joy of your salvation again. Friends, being still before the Lord is God's way of reminding us that he is God and we are not. But during this time of stillness, eventually he did speak up, and we see what he did in verse 4. He wept and mourned for days. Friends, this devastating news was not numb for Nehemiah. He had it made. He had a good-paying job. He had a nice place in the palace. And yet when bad news that concerned God's heart reached his, it affected him. It says he wept and mourned for days. For Nehemiah, minutes of sadness led to hours of grieving, and hours of grieving led to days of mourning. Every caring parent knows that when their child makes a really bad decision, it cuts them to the core. Every pastor knows when a fellow church member makes a poor and foolish decision, it cuts that pastor to the core. Do you know why? Parents, you get this. Because they love you. Because you love your kids. And I, as your pastor, love you. But Nehemiah also saw that before he could be a man of action, he had to be a man of prayer. Look at verse 4. It says, he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Friends, the deeper pain we feel in our hearts, the more we ought to lean on the everlasting arms. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Friends, in verses 4 to 11, I want you to notice Nehemiah's prayer life. When bad news came knocking on Nehemiah's door, What gave Nehemiah hope for the future? What gave Nehemiah strength of what he would need to go to the king that we'll learn about next week? Well, he had a big vision of God. In fact, four different names are used for God in this prayer. In verse 4, he says the God of heaven. It's the Hebrew Elohim. It denotes God's greatness and his attributes as supreme over all false gods. It's, it's also the name 
used often for God for creator and sustainer of life. In verse 5, he calls him the Lord God of heaven. And this is the covenant name of Yahweh, that memorial name of the great I am, the promise-making and promise-keeping God. In verse 5, he mentions the great and awesome God, El, it's spelled E-L, which denotes the strength and the power and the majesty of God. And then in verse 11, he prays, O Lord. That's the word Adonai, which denotes the sovereign ownership of God over everything. But as Nehemiah processed what he heard, as he sat down and grieved appropriately, and he called upon his great and faithful and powerful and sovereign God, clinging to his matchless attributes, Nehemiah became cut to the heart. Nehemiah was undone. He was convicted. He was broken over the sins of God's people, and he was broken over the sins of his own life. You'll notice in verses 6 and 7, you can just glance down quickly, Nehemiah led out the people, or he was about to rather, but he did with his small group, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And I want you to also notice in verse 7, he even says, even I and my father's house have sinned. Brothers and sisters, this is monumental. This is where the hinge in Nehemiah is going to begin taking on a whole new depth. You see, before God could use Nehemiah and before he would use the people of Israel to build up the walls of Jerusalem and finish the job, the Lord had to bulldoze. He had to break down some walls that were blocking up the arteries of their hearts. Before the gates and walls could be put up around the city border, the spiritual gates and spiritual walls had to come down in people's hearts. Before God could, God's people could accept the charge to do this work, they had to accept the consequences of their sin and confess it to the Lord. And you know what's amazing? Nehemiah leads by example to show them how that's done. Members of CCBC, in order for us to be more useful in the Lord's hands, next week, next year, in the years ahead, it will require that each one of us individually and together corporately that we get serious about our sin. Thomas Watson has put it bluntly, it is good to find out our sins lest they find us out. About a month ago, when my family and I were on vacation through scripture reading, prayer, a sunburn, and listening to a sermon online, I was brought under conviction from something in my own heart. And when I returned back to Fort Smith, having already shared it with Julie, I then shared it with our elders a few weeks ago. I learned a new term that put words to what I was going through for some time now. The term is coined sacrifice righteousness. Sacrifice righteousness. Sacrifice meaning what I have done for others. Righteousness implying what I deserve or what I think I deserve in return from others. Sacrifice righteousness. It sounds something like this. 
No one appreciates what I do for them. No one listens to me or my counsel. Look at how much I've done for you. And this is what I get in return. Friends, those words did not come out of my mouth towards any human being, at least that I can recall. But I have certainly murmured them a lot in my heart. From so many different things that have happened in the last two and a half years, I've had to work through much anger, disappointment, and feelings of betrayal. And one of the wonderful things the Lord has shown me through this long and painful process is that my focus must stay on the Lord in everything I do, no matter what the results are. And here's the conviction I want you to pray for me with. Pray that I live this out. Whether it's to my wife or my kids, my neighbors, our church, or even my opponents who live in this community, in all my leading and in all my serving, I must remember, it is not the response of others that I must base my joy and righteousness in. It is not what I sacrifice and do for others that I'm putting my joy and identity in. It's resting in the righteousness Jesus has given to me by faith and aiming to please God who gives me the opportunities to serve and lead. And I just simply must leave the results with him. Brothers and sisters, sacrifice righteousness. It comes off zealous. It comes off loving. But deep down inside, when others don't return back what you want them to, if its response is anger, it's probably not from God. Friends, pray for me in that. Pray that I would put to death that sacrifice righteousness Ah, that is so hard sometimes to detect. How about you? What has God been revealing in your heart lately? Through sermons, Bible studies, through your own personal quiet time, through stillness, through an elder or pastor giving you a gentle correction, through a brother and sister, a mom and dad telling you, that's not wise. You're heading in the wrong direction. Friends, whatever it is, confess it to the Lord. And confess it to your brothers and sisters. Friends, a sin-confessing church that treasures the gospel will be a church full of humble people. A sin-confessing church that treasures the gospel of grace will be a church full of humble people. It's a place where self-centered religion goes to die. Consumer-based Christianity goes to die when God's grace is our only boast. You want to know what kind of leaders you want to imitate in your life? Mark Vergott puts it this way, spiritual leaders should walk alongside their people and model self-examination and repentance. Parents, that might be what you need to do next with your kids or grandkids. Model self-examination and repentance. Husbands, maybe... One of the things that God might use in your marriage to take it in a more God-glorifying direction is if your wife is 99% wrong and you're 1% wrong, you own that 1% as if you are 100% wrong. Friends, when we give up the blame-shifting stuff and the blame game and we just take ownership of our 100% or our 1%, humility, in a broken and contrite spirit will be produced.
Friends, earlier in the service, Jesus is quoted in Luke 19 that Alan read for us, where Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. Why did Jesus weep over an entire city? Well, he wept over the unbelief of the Jewish people. Many of them rejected him like they did Jeremiah. And Jesus knew that the fall of Jerusalem by the hands of the Romans was about to happen just a few decades later. We also know from John 17 that Jesus would pray for his disciples. They would be, he prayed that they would be holy and distinct, that his joy would be in them and that they would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. Friends, God, today, through Jesus Christ, who's reigning by his Spirit, is building his church. Jesus is interceding for his church that we would be built up and accomplish the Great Commission. Friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, what holds you back from giving your whole life to Jesus Christ? What holds you back from realizing, listen, you can't control everything in your life. You know that. You see, the, the worst news, the bad, 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 bad news is that we've sinned against a holy God. And the only way we can be made right with God is if our good God is merciful to us. You see, you need to be concerned about that bad news first, that your sins are many, and there's only one that can forgive you of all of them, and that is Jesus Christ. He laid down his life on the cross as a substitute, taking the punishment of God's wrath for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust him. And then God raised him from the dead, demonstrating to the world he is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead and to take his bride forever. Friends, turn from your sins and trust in him. Join in on the team that's going to win. His will, his kingdom will come. Don't fight against it anymore. Come to him by faith and he will save you. Maybe you're a Christian here today. But you haven't been still before the Lord in a long time. Weeping and mourning, fasting and praying, that really hasn't been an experience that you've ever experienced before. Over the sins of others, over the sins of your family, over the sins of fellow church members, over the sins of things that have happened in this community and around this country and around the world, even the sins of our own hearts. As we conclude this morning, I'm going to end this time in an unusual way, but hopefully in light of what we see in Nehemiah 1. I want to lead us in confession of sin, and you make it personal for you. This is largely adapted from an article written by Paul Tripp. And if you would, join me in praying while we remain seated, and then we'll close. Let's pray. Father, forgive me. I am a sinner in desperate need of your grace. Forgive me for the sins I name as less than sinful. Forgive me for hating the sin in others 
more than my own. Forgive me for every moment when I love what you name as evil. Forgive me for loving my pleasure more than I love you. Forgive me for those times when I complain to you more than praise you. Forgive me for those times when my talk is not shaped by a love for you and others. Forgive me for those moments when I fail to give others the grace you've given me. Forgive me for those times I want control rather than resting in your control. Forgive me when I doubt your wisdom, mercy, and love. Forgive me for every moment when I am angry because I did not get my own way. Forgive me for those times I failed to witness to your rescuing grace. Forgive me for often loving earthly treasures more than the spiritual treasures you have lavished on me. Forgive me for those many moments when I have failed to love my spouse as you love your church. Forgive me for those times when I have used my gifts for my glory and not yours. Forgive me when my fantasies are outside of your boundaries. Forgive me when I have responded to the weaknesses of others with irritation and not grace. Forgive me when I am comfortable with a dichotomy between what I profess and how I live. Forgive me when I allow the distractions of earth to keep me from seeking the things above. Forgive me when I am not a good steward of my time, energy, and resources. Forgive me for every time I battle for my way instead of joyfully submitting to your way. Forgive me for every moment I fail to seek and celebrate your generous forgiveness. Forgive me for failing to quest to be holy as you are holy. Forgive me for every instance where my heart wanders from your righteous path. Forgive me for words unsaid that should have been said and for words said that should have never been said. Forgive me for feeling entitled to be loved while at the same time failing to love. Forgive me for carrying a burden of guilt because I have doubted your forgiveness. Forgive me for those times when I have failed to love justice, mercy, and humility. So I bow before your holiness, not because of my righteousness, but because of the perfect righteousness of your Son. Knowing that my penalty has been paid, I come to you for what only you can offer. Please work to keep my heart tender and may my mouth always be willing to confess my need for your forgiveness. This morning, Father, we lay hold of the promise that we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
O Lord, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. O Lord, teach us how to run boldly to your throne of grace in every time of need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.